has been a long accepted standard in the library community of guarding patrons' privacy in place for generations for all the best of reasons, concerns over civil liberties, censorship, and safety. But in the face of an internet that increasingly lowers the typical barriers of privacy, that finds a function for personal data that users often value over privacy, libraries kind of seem behind the times. Many are asking what libraries could do to help users take control over the data about the books they are reading, and to better share that information. Jeff Jarvis is one of the web's most well-known oversharers. He is a longtime media critic and a professor at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. In 2009, he began using social media to discuss his treatment for prostate cancer, which for a man is about as personal as you can get. But he believes creating opportunities for individuals to opt in to just this kind of sharing in any context can have a net positive effect. Jeff Jarvis sat down with David Weinberger to talk about how libraries might be able to venture safely into the world of sharing. Libraries have a long tradition of being bastions of privacy, and one could say, for a couple of reasons, maybe that increasingly there's even more of a, a focus and more pride by librarians that they are preserving the privacy of their users. And then along comes this web thing, and it seems everybody wants to be as public as possible. So there seems to be a trade-off. Uh, Jeff, what what do you see as some of the positive values of the new publicness? Librarians are protective of our curiosities, right? And, and I think that when we just want to know something, being able to protect that and, and, and secure that into our control is very important for, for democracy. And, and, and so I'm quick to say that I'm all for privacy and believe in privacy and think it's very important. But I think that in our current mania about privacy and our fears about privacy, we risk losing some of the benefits of publicness. So now finally to, the, to your question. As I've thought about this more and more, I think that the key value of publicness is speech, is the fact that we have the, the right to say what we want. Looked at it from a legal perspective, there is no right to privacy enshrined in law. It was found only starting in 1890 uh, by Brandeis and Warren. Whereas there certainly is a right to publicness in the Constitution, it is the essence of the First Amendment. We have a right to speak, a right to be public. And I've come to see that the Gutenberg Press was the first great tool of publicness. And now, of course, the Internet gives us all our Gutenberg Press. And, and it gives us that power, that right to be public. And there's all kinds of benefits that come out of that. Uh, one is simply that we can talk to the world. We can organize people, witness what happens these days in the Arab Spring. We can make relationships with people. We can meet people we otherwise wouldn't have met. We can answer our curiosities. We can um, debunk misstatements in the world. We can do just all kinds of things because we have this right of publicness. So I turn around, while there are many, many people asking what are the risks to privacy, and well they should ask that, and well they should protect that, I also fear about the risks to publicness. Uh, and I fear that um, issues like net neutrality, uh, issues of restricting one bit for, for a company's reason or a government's reason uh, are, are real problems for us. So I think that librarians stand in a position above any other group to recognize the value not only of privacy but also of publicness because they protect a public archive of public thoughts. So that's the easy part. Okay. Uh, because every librarian in the world, I'm going to guess, We'll salute that. Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, free speech, uh, 
no censorship or minimal, you know, or very uh, progressive attitude against censorship of all sorts generally. Um, but there's a different type of publicness. So uh, there's public speech, and then there's the um, sharing of uh, communications that generally used to be private, person to person, friend to friend. There's the sharing of behaviors. There's the sharing of, for example, which books I took out and uh, which ones I gave a star to or whatever. Um, there's all, all of the non-declarative sorts of publicness that now are possible and easy, and in fact, easier than keeping private, that weren't before. Uh, and, and many librarians are quite worried about that sort of information becoming public because it can be used. Uh, Homeland Security notices that you took out the book on you know, Pathways of the Presidents and the book on how to set off C4 or plastic explosive or whatever. Or, or it's not interesting, perhaps, that on Blippi, I revealed that I used my credit card to buy a lot of fertilizer, unless I also took out a book about making bombs with it, yes, right? So it's the silos of data that come together start to freak people out. Yes, and Blippi being a site where people make their credit card purchases weirdly public. But there you go, exactly. So um, we are in a position now in libraries, however, as many other sorts of uh, enterprises, to get benefit out of stuff that used to be private that now increasingly is being made public or can be made public. And that's where the, the tension is. So could you perhaps talk a little bit about the, the benefits that we get out of what some people see as oversharing? And address this to a famous oversharer, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that's the right verb, share. Right? Sharing is what this is really all about. And, and Part of the question which you've raised is where the defaults are, which we'll get back to in a minute, I'm sure. But I think what we have to recognize is that, is that 600 million people can't be wrong, that people go on Facebook to share for a bunch of reasons. Right? They want to signal to the world what they like. They want to support what they like. They want to meet up with people who are similarly minded. They want to argue with people to, who are not similarly minded. They have all kinds of different reasons, but, but we're in a, an age of sharing. There's an industry of sharing, which is Facebook and Foursquare and Blippi and Google. Um, and, and, and I think we have to recognize that, that society as a whole is seeing more and more benefit in that. So I'm wrong here that, yes, the default of what you take out of the library is private and protected by librarians with pitchforks and guns. However, if you want to share your reading habits and I want to share mine, they should make it portable for us, just like we demand and want Amazon to be able to make things portable for us. Portable between applications. Between applications. So data doesn't get locked into one particular library or Amazon-like entity. Right. So I would love to take my Amazon wish list and put it on my Facebook page, for example. Right? Now, my Amazon wish list could also be all too revealing. When I got my diagnosis of prostate cancer, which led to much blogging about my penis, but, but at the very early days... Um, I was storing things on Delicious about prostate. And I forgot that a colleague of mine was monitoring my Delicious account for all kinds of boring, wonky media things. And he went to another colleague of mine and said, is something wrong? Um, right. So as it turns out, I'm terribly public. I was public about it anyway. But, but I perhaps would have been wiser to have kept those bookmarks private. And the word we hear around this all the time is control. And control is sometimes used these days as a synonym for privacy. Though privacy is extremely difficult to define, as I've learned. Um, In the course of writing a book about this, you've learned. Yes, as, exactly. Uh, as, a, as the most uh, well-known oversharer on the right. Internet at the moment. Right. So. 
so so the, the simple notion of control of your data is too simplistic because there are certain things that we do in public. Um, but the act of going to a library and taking out a book is a private act. So that's the default, and I agree with you there. And I agree with the next step, though, is that there is benefit to the reader and benefit to their friends and benefit to their society to have the right and ability to share that. So I, I, I think the construct you set up is the default is that the information is private, but if there were functionality that enabled me to share it, we have to also look and see what benefit would come out of that. Right? A lot of benefit comes from the act of curation, that the librarian is a curator of sorts, but so are the readers curators. The readers are recommending books. Look at all the incredible things that come out of our recommendations and reviews on Amazon and through music and all these other places. Why shouldn't the library be a center of that kind of buzz and recommendation and love fest around reading and books? It would be a great thing for the librarian and a great thing for the community. Well, here's one reason why, and you know that I agree with you yes. on this, but nevertheless, I think there's a valid question to ask, which is, you know, 600 million people can be wrong. Um, there are hundreds of millions of people who have neck you tattoos, for example. <laughs> people do things that they later regret, and um, just as you uh, forgot that your delicious feed, delicious.com, although certainly it's delicious as well, uh, that your delicious feed was being monitored by other people and that they would put two, two, two together and you'd reveal something maybe you didn't quite want to reveal yet. In the same way, um, somebody who says, yes, oh, my library offers the service of allowing me to announce to the world which books I'm reading, uh, which ones I've taken out, and maybe which ones you know, I can review them, et cetera, forgets that when, let's say, he or she takes out the very private one that, that damn it, it got released, or they're taking it, their kids, they're, they're young and they do it, and then later on they regret, or they were flirting with this or that. So people do make mis mistakes. Here's the question. Uh, we want people to have informed consent when they do this type of sharing, but it's, we don't really know how to inform people. We can say, be worried, you're responsible if something goes wrong, but giving people an actual sense of the risk that their information will be used in a way that would make them uncomfortable. We don't yet have science behind us. We don't know how to do that. And so maybe the right thing to do is say, you know what, just don't. No, I, I, I don't like that kind of world. <laughs> uh, but then that's me. I, I, I share too much. Uh, I, I think we can start from two places. One is look back at Blippi, this crazy service that lets you share your credit cards. When it started, it, credit card purchase. Purchase, sorry. Yes, yes, <laughs> no, not, nothing more. Very big difference. What you bought, right. And and so when it started, you picked a credit card, and everything you bought with that credit card was by, was just automatically public. And that didn't work for two reasons. One, what you just outlined is, oh, my God, I forgot. I just bought blank, and now everyone's going to know. Uh, but also, the benefit to Blippi was not the sharing of the purchases. The benefit to Blippi was what you said about them. And so when you reviewed the items, that had more depth. And so Blippi switched to a structure where you only chose to share specific things. And when you did so, it, it, it cued you to please write a review of those things, which was better for Blippi, the Blippi community, but also for you. Because there was the obvious informed consent. I was very explicitly choosing to share each purchase. So I think part of this can be handled with functionality and say, here is your neat sharing library app. 
And uh, there's an API that allows you to share this stuff on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever, and you're going to explicitly do it every time you do it. So I think that's a very easy way to get to informed consent, because clearly I'm choosing to do this each time. Which also, by the way, helps with the spam problem of, you know, please, Weinberger, I bet you read a lot more books than I do, so I don't want your Twitter to constantly be telling me all the books you read and you're showing off. You know, you're telling me for a reason. And so you don't just give noise, you give value. Okay, that's, that's one answer. The other answer, I, I think, is that if we tried to imagine anything and everything that could ever in any universe parallel to this one or otherwise go wrong, then we'll never do anything. We will live in, you know, uh, Bin Laden's home. So, so I, I just think that what we have to do in this whole issue of privacy is that we have to have a discussion about real harm. And could things go wrong? Absolutely. Lots of things could go wrong in life. And if you try to guard against everything that could possibly ever go wrong, then we're going to live in cotton cocoons. And I don't much like that world. Now, I don't want to force someone out into this world. But for those of us who do want to share, I also don't want someone to overprotect me so that it makes it very hard for me to share. So it doesn't give me this right and opportunity. So I mean, you always have the option, right? Because you could just post a list. Here's what I'm reading. You always have the option of doing that, but there's that there wouldn't then be a system that could um, the library couldn't systematically take advantage of that to compile recommendations and um, provide other sorts. Right. Of so there's a benefit to me individually to share. There's a benefit to my friends if I share. Oh, he has terrible taste. If he reads it, I'm not going to read it, right? Um, but there's a benefit to the community as a whole, right? The library has aggregate data that I wish it would release. And uh, anonymized perhaps. Yes, sure, sure, sure. But then so start there. Does do librarians do that? Do they do they object to that? Generally, yes. Right. They and, won't show you patterns even even in aggregate. Uh, no, because well <clears throat> because there's always the risk of re-identification. Right. The classic case being uh, Netflix or AOL where anonymized data was put together intersected with other data sources and suddenly in the case of AOL which had released a few years ago released a big batch of just its searches without any personal identifiers and people figured out, I won't get it exactly right, but the doctor in Passaic, in Passaic who was searching for uh, how to get a divorce and then how to kill my wife and, you know, poisons and it was, <laughs> <laughs> and they could figure out who it was because of, et cetera. So there's this risk of re-identification. It keeps surprising us how little information we need to be out in public in order for extremely clever computer scientists to identify who exactly right, let's, let's start here. So we don't know what the, we, we can't predict always what the risk no, is going to be. Not, not when it gets down to, to an individual uh, book loaned, right? But start here. What about a, a, a bestseller list from libraries? What about an aggregate list across many libraries of the most popular biographies of blank? What about ways to, the, the, the libraries have data about usage that is itself valuable. So part of the ethic of what Google has done, right, is that it took, stole, however you want to look at it, right, our own click data. It caused us to click on things, but it added value to that and then gave it back to us. And that's how we get what we get out of Google, right? So libraries have much smarter data people who actually read whole books and, and, and study things. And, and it's a shame, it's a pity, it's a waste. No one goes so far as to say it's a crime, 
but we don't get that data back. We lose it because of this fear. So to me, I would make it a project of, among librarians to try to figure out the first safe steps to share more. So the first safe steps generally are to, if it's most checked out, um, those sorts of lists, and many, many library, li libraries make that information available on exactly the grounds you say. You cannot go backwards from that list. Where you can start going backwards is where you get to the trade-off in the complexity of the data. So knowing which books were checked out together, that's, that's what Amazon does, right? Which books are searched for together or clicked on together. That information is, is very rich and compelling. So if you want to reinforce the head of the tail, and Jeff, I know you were all about that. I'm, that was sarcasm. Um, then identifying the most read works is both safe and it's very interesting too. But of limited utility, yes. Yeah, if you want to direct people. And then you start, so it's when you start noticing that the same person who checked out this then checked out that and checked out a third thing and there's only, the third thing is how to fix a, Pink 1957 DeSoto, and there's only one person in the community who has a 57 DeSoto. Is that's where reidentification starts to raise its head, right where it gets really valuable and interesting. Right. right. Well, but but look at the at, at the clash of cultures here. I think that if we had this discussion not about libraries, if this entire discussion and we we put in in every case Amazon, we net people would tend to get pissy with Amazon that they have all this valuable data and they don't open it up to all of us. And by God, it's our data. How dare they proprietarily hold on to that data? That data is the community's. The wisdom of the crowd belongs to the crowd. We are the crowd. Let's storm them and get our information, our data. I think that would be our going in attitude toward a new company like Amazon. Exact same issue, usage and readership, right? Exact same stuff. Libraries come from a different culture, right, where they are quasi-governmental and there are free speech issues galore and they're more, they can be subpoenaed and all these reasons we know. But our starting point is the opposite there. <gasps> no, don't give out a thing. And, and wisdom has to lie somewhere in the middle of those two, I think. Um, so to me, making things safely anonymous is a, is a science we haven't figured out fully yet. But I think it's, it can get there. I'll have the faith that we can get there. Be. Always a risk, right? Um, so, full, but life is all, full of risks. <laughs> so, if we are going to manage, privacy has always been a matter of managing risk. Yes, so and if we're going to manage to eliminate all risk, then we're not going to go outside because it might lightning. And you had a, a tornado here a while ago. You have to have a private reading booth in the library, and your books taken down from the shelves in a brown paper bag that you carry to your little reading booth. Yes, so and you're you not going to drive there because God knows people get into accidents. And people will therefore know you're going to the library. And right. that by itself is very valuable information. Right. So, so can we secure the world against all risks? No, we can't. And should we? No, we can't. Life is risks. And, and, and we need to, to have that. When, when Gutenberg invented his magnificent press, authors, the earliest authors I have learned in researching my book, Public Parts, out in September, um, we got a plug. Masterly, got a plug. Masterful. Um, well done, sir. <laughs> was that the earliest authors, some of them were very scared of this. They were scared of having their ideas put down permanently, spread widely, um, and uh, thought that this was a terrible idea because there was not the sense of ownership and authorship and responsibility and um, authority that existed around writing. And it took society a long time to adjust its norms to those notions. 
And we did. And we all became publicity whores. And we all became blurbers. And we wanted more attention. And we wanted to own our words. And we wanted to do all kinds of other things that came along. So society's norms have to catch up. What I've learned in looking into publicness and privacy is how much fears about privacy are tied to new technology. And so start with the printing press and authors being scared of, of their ideas put under their names, spread widely, out of their control. That freaked people out. The first major discussion of a right to privacy, a legal right to privacy in the United States came in 1890, and the reason was the invention of the Kodak camera, tied to the progress of the penny press and the high-speed press that, that that enabled. And uh, Brandeis and Warren in 1890 wrote a, a law review uh, piece that, that I'm sure your listeners know far better than I, uh, but that um, feared greatly the notion that the camera could now be carried anywhere and take a picture of anyone. And there are great quotes from the New York Times around the time talking about fiendish Kodakers lying in wait. <laughs> And uh, how President uh, Teddy Roosevelt banned Kodakers from public parks in Washington for fear that he and his children would be photographed and their pictures would appear in the newspaper. Um, so we so go through that. What you're saying is nothing at all has changed because we are still banning Kodakers from taking pictures of... Well, or yeah. we're putting up billions of photos on Facebook. Oh, there's that too. Right? <laughs> and so you go along, and if you look in the last century, the things that caused fear, small microphones, video cameras tape recorders like the one we're talking into right now. All these things cause privacy fears. Well, the technology of technologies is the internet. It is causing change as great as Gutenberg's, and thus it's causing unrest and fear. And, you know, it's not, that's not insane. I'm not ridiculing this, because one does need to look at what could happen so you guard against the worst of that. However, if that's all we do, then we lose incredible benefit. If we stay at home in our rooms all day, then we don't know what we've lost. So let me let me give an example, because what this leads to is that, therefore, um, we need to adjust our norms. They're being adjusted for us anyway, because the technology sort of, you know, tends in that direction. Um, so I, I a couple times couple times referred to you as the Internet's most famous oversharer, which, and in this case, um, it, what I'm actually referring to is something I greatly admire you for, which was to push our norms, um, that uh, you um, were very frank and, and, and very public. And explicit. Uh, and explicit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, about uh, an area that we generally don't want to hear about, you don't talk about in public. And so I read, I think it's pretty clear that you, you said this is a norm that we don't need and gets in the way. And we'd be better talking more about our health issues especially when they're uh, concerned parts of the body that we don't talk about. You masterfully went through five minutes without once using the word penis. Uh, I'm happy to say that I don't think I've used the word penis more than six or seven times in these library podcasts. It would be seven or eight now. Um, right, so I wrote about prostate cancer. And um, a little bit of background, that it didn't come strictly from that, but uh, I, I also came to have heart arrhythmia out of 9-11 in an indirect path. And I blogged about that because it was just going on in my life. And I got incredible value for it. People gave me advice and support and all kinds of things. So when I got the diagnosis of prostate cancer, I, my instinct, my, my reflex, was to go to the Internet and talk about it. Now, I couldn't because my son was away at uh, a college camp and I wasn't going to have find out about his father's cancer in a tweet, which would be a low ebb in parenting. Um, 
So I waited, and then I came on, and I wrote about it, and I got, all in all, nothing but good comments. I've discovered friends of mine who had had the operation who I wouldn't have known had had the operation had I not been public. And they gave me incredibly frank and helpful advice and a preview of what was going to happen to me that I wouldn't get from a doctor's pamphlet. But I only got that from being public. I got other people to get their PSA checked. Have you had yours checked recently? Yeah. Okay, good boy. Um, And so that's beneficial, and so on and so on. So I have so many benefits. Now, only one person really came after me for oversharing. Uh, a guy named Mark Derry, who hated me anyway and hates everything I write anyway. And so it was another latest excuse. And it turns out, by the way, that he's also a prostate cancer uh, patient. But he said that this was just awful, that it was it was, it was this uh, bloggeriac um, uh, excess of saying too much. And oversharing, when you think about it, is a very odd concept because it's saying that you didn't want to hear what I had to say. Well, then don't listen. And if you tell me not to say it, then you're certainly affecting my freedom of speech. You're certainly affecting my speech. And I resent that. So by God, I'll talk about my penis, whether you like it or not. Um, You don't have to like it. You don't have to listen either. But to tell me I can't say it, that that offends my American soul. And and so I think that part of what we have to do when we look at this is is that this is speech. And librarians of all people must protect speech. So I want, to, I want to draw a slightly different lesson for librarians from okay. this. Um, speech, for sure. Um, but it's also you pushed a norm and got tremendous value and somewhat unexpected value. You're, you're, you know, you're sort of uh, wise about the Internet, so I'm not going to say you were shocked by, shocked by the value, but nevertheless, um, that there, is, there can be value in pushing norms that look like they're settled and in a networked age, we may get benefits that we didn't expect. So um, I take this, your story, as encouragement for, for pushing. For pushing. Yes, Not- yes, exactly. So, so, so how do you, if you're a librarian and you don't want to mess up, right? Part of the problem in this world is when you have the world changing, you're trying to figure out norms, you have to have some license to fail. And governments don't have license to fail, right? Government, we, we, we offer their heads. Librarians, because they treat their protection of us as a sacred need, and well, they should, and I'm grateful they do, don't want to mess up. But I think one could certainly take populations of people and learn and experiment with them and see what the benefits are. And opt in, as you said at the beginning. Right. You you opt in and and, and you say to a community, if you want to be able to, uh, at the extreme, by default, share everything you want on Twitter, you know, fine. Um, you can buy a scale now, a weight scale now, that will, will, is on Wi-Fi. And it will put your weight up on your own laptop so you can analyze your weight. But it will also tweet it out to the whole world. Matt Cutts from Google, who deals with spammers there, bought one on Blippi. A hundred people noticed immediately he'd done so and bought the same scale. Because Matt had shared that publicly. And Matt went on the, on the Twitter diet. Uh, Brian Stelter, a wonderful... I don't do that if there was a filter so that it only reported when I went down. Well, well, uh, but no. Brian Stelter, who is a genius young reporter at the New York Times, if you watch the movie Page One, he's one of the two kind of stars of it. He, in the process of making the movie, went on the Twitter diet, uh, got the Wi-Fi scale. Uh, at first, tried to tell... He created a separate Twitter account just for his stomach and telling what people what he wrote what he ate, and then he fell off the wagon a few times and didn't tell him about that slice of pizza and didn't tell him about this. But he found people were following him and he found an obligation to them 
They were using him as inspiration. They were there to support him. His brother went on it too. So now the social pressure of doing this forced him to be honest about it, and he lost 90 pounds. So the equivalent the here is people who, actually, who um, use Twitter in a library context in order to have social pressure to encourage them to actually finish uh, remembrance of things past. Yes. Or, you know, yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's the same as a book club, right? A book club puts the same pressure on you. Yes. Oh, I'm afraid they're going to say something about the end, and I didn't listen to it, right? I didn't watch it. Listen to it. Listen to me. Um, uh, I didn't read the, the cliff notes to the end, um, right? So, so you know, so I'm public, and I and I share too much in some people's views, and and I default to public, but not everything I do is public, nor should it be, for a few reasons. One is because most of my life, who could give a damn? Right, so so the, it, what I do is noise, and so I shouldn't share something unless there's some value in it. Okay, but even if we get past that, um, I don't want the obvious things shared. I don't want you to share my credit card information because I don't want you to steal my identity and my money. What there is of it, um, so that's obvious. But that's really not a matter of sharing. That's a matter of theft and fraud and things like that. Would I want you to look at my browsing history on the internet? And even if we pass by the fact that I've looked at pornography, okay, now that we've said that, and the word penis, I have nothing else left to hide. But I do. Um, and part of the problem becomes context. Right? So that I may go to sites because I have a curiosity about them, or I'm trying to find what people are screaming about or whatever, and without my commentary of why I'm there, you may draw conclusions about me just by my actions, right? And that's exactly what a librarian wants to stop. And that's why you're, you're right. Users of a social system like this need to be informed. They need to know that that's the implication. They need to understand. There's a new definition of media literacy, or the Germans call it media competence, which I kind of like better. That you're competent with media means not that you know how to absorb it and to consume it, but how to create it, and what the implications are of what you've created. And in a world where, through listening to music and putting up your last FM, your use creates a track, your use is the same as creation of content because you've created this, this record of what you're interested in. And that has value. A lot of people do it, and they want to do it, and it's great. And if I did it, it would be very embarrassing because a lot of Nora Jones in there and boring stuff like that. My wife won't let me handle the car radio as a result. Um, right, but that's my choice. So put it all together, and I still want librarians to find ways to support publicness. Because I think it's especially in an age when books are threatened. It would be a good thing to... Sh and he, he also thinks I overshare and doesn't agree with anything I have to say. But here I am quoting him. Um, he, um, uh, but, but you're right. Does this create you know, kind of an individual social pressure like the Twitter diet that I can, I can be reading more? But that's a good thing. So how do, we, how do we enable that? If we all we do is start every analysis of what could go wrong, we'll never do anything. And I come from an industry of newspapers where, where they constantly feared that they were going to hurt themselves so they did nothing. And in a time of change, you can't do that. That's insane. Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Jeff Jarvis is a professor at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. He blogs at buzzmachine.com. This podcast was brought to you from the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. In the coming months, we'll be interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. Our theme music comes from Brad Sucks. You can find out more about him at bradsucks.net. And this show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School.